you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Ephesians, New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. We're starting a uh, new series uh, this morning uh, that will carry us through about the middle of November. Uh, It's entitled Measures, so how am I doing? And as Michael said, it's a uh, kind of a self-reflective, self-examination of of how we are, are doing spiritually. For our church, we have a mission statement. And our mission statement is sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. And this is the mission for our church congregationally as a whole. This is what we want to do. We want to send transformed people to influence their world for Christ. But if you throw something out like this, you also have to ask the question, well, how are we doing? And throughout the days, today and tomorrow and on into the future, you always want to figure out how are we doing with this? And the only way we know how we do with this congregation is how we do with this individually. And so each one of us needs to be able to ask ourselves, how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I being a transformed person that is being sent to influence their world for Christ? So how how am I doing with this? It's like a checkup. And we get checkups like this all throughout life. Uh, From our health standpoint, we're to go to a doctor and get a physical checkup. And when we go in to the doctor, one of the very first things he'll ask is, how are you doing? And uh, when I was younger, the questions, there weren't very many questions. It was, hey, how's your energy level? Have you done anything stupid that's breaking any bones? Are you okay? That's about it. But as you get older, get a whole lot more questions because a whole lot more can go wrong. But the doctor just wants to know first off, so how are you doing? You begin to tell about aches or pains or any things that have changed, and then they run their test, and uh, they'll do the lipid test and the stress test and, and everything else to try to do all these measurements. And then when it's over, they then sit down with you, review your results, and then they give you some recommendations that will help you to feel better and to make along a better, healthy path of living. There's a health checkup. Financially we get checkups to where we need to sit down. Maybe it's just you and, a, and your spouse sitting down or maybe sitting down with a financial advisor and taking a look at your finances and say, hey, how are we doing? How are we doing with our budget? Or maybe we need to create a budget. How are we doing on saving money for college education? Maybe to buy a house, maybe to buy a car, maybe to adopt a child, <clears throat> maybe to take a big trip. Whatever it is, you're trying to put money aside And you want to see how are we doing financially, how are we doing? I want to get that checkup. And then once you take a look at everything, you then make some decisions. We need to cut here. We need to shift money over here. We need to tighten the belt on this. We make those decisions. Why? So that financially we can be healthier. We do this with our marriages. need to do some marriage checkups where every so often you just sit down with your spouse and say, so how are we doing? How am I doing as a husband? How am I doing as a wife? And you begin to talk about these things. And maybe you talk about how much time are we spending? What's our calendars looking like? Uh, are we being kind to each other? And, and just talk about these things. And then all of a sudden, after you've had those discussions, you begin to either do some minor tweaks or some major steps in order for that marriage to be stronger and to be God-honoring 
like you desired it to be. So you've got physical checkups, financial checkups, marriage checkups, and we also need to have spiritual health checkups. So how are you doing spiritually? And a lot of times we don't really know how to do that. What are the questions that we need to ask? How am I doing in my walk with God? How am I progressing spiritually? Well, having a mission statement of sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ can give you a bar right there to begin to see how am I doing with this. But what are the questions that I need to ask? And over these next number of weeks, we're going to give you a question each week called a measure. And in this measure, it's a question that you are to ask yourself, and only you can answer it. And so it's a self-diagnostic question, and when you ask that question, then you come back and you evaluate, and you say, well, so how am I doing? Now, what I would encourage you to do is when we get these questions to you, I'd love for you to write them down. And as you write them down, then periodically ask yourself these questions. And I'd put them in a place where I could find them. Uh, You may want to put them on your desk, a desk at home or desk at work. You may want to write the questions and put them in your wallet. You may want to put them in your phone, may want to put it on your laptop or your iPad. Or if you were Keith Habermas, you put on a three-by-five card and stick it in your pocket. (laughs) But it's some place that you can find it, review it, and it's just between you and God saying, you know, how am I doing? Now, today we begin something that we call uh, 50 Days of Standing in the Gap. 50 Days of Standing in the Gap. And for us, we are asking all of us as a congregation for these next 50 days, starting today all the way through November 20th, to stand in the gap and to do three major things. Number one, first of all, is to intercede for our nation and the presidential election. Uh, we're less than 40 days away uh, from uh, a, uh, an election of our next president that will serve for the next four years. And so we need to be praying about that election, but even on a bigger scale, just pray for our nation and to be people that will, uh, <clears throat> that will lift up our nation and pray. We talk about this, but sometimes we don't do it much. So we want to focus for these 50 days to pray for our nation and pray for the election. Second of all is that not only do we intercede for that, but we also internalize the six measures. So during these next uh, number of weeks, once we give you the measure today, I want you over the next week, as you're spending time praying, for you to internalize this measure. I want you to pray about it, think about it, let it become a part of who you are. And then next week, We'll give you a second measure. And last of all is this, and that is to intentionally pray and fast. Intentionally pray and fast. For all these 50 days, we're asking you to intentionally pray and fast. Now, as we shared last week, you get last week's message if you want to know more about that on the fasting. But just very quickly, it is, it is something that you choose. I'm not, we're not being legalistic. We don't have a, a list of things that you have to do. It is the fact that you want to give something up. Cut something out of your, out of your schedule, uh, out of your na- normal routine, and in its place, spend that time with the Lord. So I'm not asking you to do something additional. I'm not piling on. I'm actually taking away. So for instance, if you sat there and said, you know what? Once a week, I'm going to take one day and I'm going to fast a lunch. Well, let's just say it's Thursday. And on Thursday, I'm not going to eat lunch. So this is what you do. 
Instead of you having to get in your car and drive over and go through the drive through at Chick-fil-A and pick you something up and then come over to your office and eat your meal or if you're home to fix your lunch, instead of that, just grab you a water or some juice and say, for that one hour, I'm just going to focus on God. I'm going to pray for our nation. I'm going to pray for the election. And I'm going to focus on this measure and anything else that God brings to my mind. And I'm going to be reading his word and I'm going to be praying and I'm going to do this, focus in on this. Now, throughout the week, you can daily be spending time with God. I'm not telling you not to do that. You need to do that. But at least one day, have a specific time set aside that you focus on him and focus on these things we talked about. There are others that God may lead you to do a long-term fast. It could be a 21-day fast uh, of not eating, just liquid diet or so. It could be longer. That's between you and the Lord. It could change every week. One week it may be food. The next week maybe it's an activity. I'm going to stay off social media for, uh, for one entire night, and just during that time, I'm going to spend my time with the Lord. It's, you've got a lot of flexibility. The whole reason I'm asking us to do this is to take, take it to another level of praying for our nation, praying for this election, and praying about these measures in our lives. So that's what we will be doing over these 50 days of standing in the gap. So what we want to do is introduce to you the first measure. And the first measure is this, have I met with God today? Everybody needs to write this down, have I met with God today? And this would be the very first question that you need to ask. Now, out of all of this, <clears throat> the key word is the word met. Have I met with God today? When, um, when you meet with someone, and when I say meet with someone, I'm talking about meet with someone face-to-face. This is not texting. It's not Snapchatting. It's not dropping a tweet. It's not Instagram. It's not a Facebook message. It is a face-to-face meeting. Whenever you meet face-to-face with someone, it is intentional and it's in-depth. When you meet someone face-to-face, the great thing about meeting someone face-to-face is that it's a whole new dimension over here. Because when you meet someone face-to-face, if I'm meeting face-to-face, I'm eye-to-eye, right? And not only am I eye-to-eye, but also when you talk, I can listen to you. Visually, I can see. You've even got touch. We can shake a hand over here, put an arm. Hey, don't stand up. We don't want you to. All right? You know, put an arm around somebody. And, and there's just, that, it's just that, that friendliness, you know, that openness there. And so as, as I come and see someone face-to-face, there's more of a connection. And you can begin to get those nonverbal communication. Uh, whether they're smiling or frowning or when you make some statement and they get this look on their face, you communicate better. And so if you were emailing someone, you don't pick up on these things. If I'm emailing Brian over here and I send him some long message, he emails me back and we get this back and forth string, that's nothing compared to if we just sat there and had a 10, 15-minute conversation face-to-face. So what I'm asking you to do is the first measure is have I met with God? Have I met with God? Now, interpreting that, it means that, um, that it's different than saying, did you attend Sunday school today? Sometimes that's just a box we check off. Did you go to worship today? Check that box off. Did you read your devotional today? Check that box off. Did you do your daily Bible reading today? Check that box off. All of those are good. All of those are good. But we can fall into a rut 
to where all we're doing is reading about God and hearing about God and not really meeting with God. And to where all it is is I'm just checking a box, but I've not really gotten down and deep in meeting with God. The question you need to ask yourself is, have I met with God today? You could walk out of this service and say, I truly met with God today. Because your focus was on him, the way you sang the songs, the message, it hit right where you were, and you sat there and just focused on him and said, you know, I I met with God today. There's sometimes you can open up an open windows devotional and read it and nothing. But there are other times when you open it, if you're really focused and say, I'm going to meet with God. I'm not just going to check a box. I'm really going to read this. I'm going to read what it has to say. I'm going to look at the scripture and I'm going to let God speak to my heart. There is a difference. Okay. I want us to get connected with God. And so the very first measure is, have I met with God today? So you know the difference of when you text somebody versus when you meet them face to face. I'm also going to tell you, you know the difference when you just glance to God or when you really meet with God. So you got to ask yourself every day, ask this question, have I met with God today? You say, well, why is that so important that I meet with God? Well, that's where Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10 comes in. The importance of meeting with God daily. And I want you to look at this passage and we are going to walk through this passage and to get a foundation for why it is so important that you meet with God daily. Let me give you the first point, and it covers the first nine verses of this, and this is the first point. It will deepen your relationship with God who takes you from death to life. Deepen your relationship with God who takes you from death to life. I don't even have to look in the passage right now. And if I just wrote this statement and said there was someone you were dying and they saved your life, would you want to deepen your relationship with them? You would say, yes, I would want to know this person better because I owe my entire life to them. Well, the reason we want to meet with God is to deepen our relationship with him because he takes you from death to life. Now let's look at these verses starting in chapter two, look at the very first verse. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. He's writing to a church in Ephesus. And he says, guys, let me tell you, you're a part of the church now, but you were dead. That was who you were. You had a dead lifestyle. You were spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses, those are specific acts that go against the commands of God. And sin means to miss the mark, miss the mark of God's standard for holiness. You were living in sin. You'd done sinful things, and that was resulting in spiritual death. And then look at verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, he says, uh, in which you once walked. So you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now he paints kind of a, a, a difficult picture here. He says, you were walking according to the things of this world. You were walking according to the plans of Satan. And as you were living that life, it was a life that was bringing you death. And he says, you were a child of wrath. You were a child of wrath. 
which means God's wrath was coming on to you. God's judgment was getting ready to come at you because you were sinning. You were against him. God is holy. You were imperfect. Sin was separating you. And you were going to spend eternity separated from God. He says, this is who you were. And and so he says, this is the condition that all of us were. All of us. Because of our trespasses and because of our sins, we were dying. It was a spiritual death. And we were going to experience God's wrath. And so as you read those first three verses, you're thinking, man, this is, this is bad. This is, this is a bad uh, situation I'm in. And then you get to verse 4. And when you get to verse 4, it is the great conjunction, the word but. <laughs> and it says, but God. All right? He's taking the initiative. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us. Now, what God does is he intervenes with his character, his character of mercy and his character of love. And out of this character of God, he is rich in his mercy, great in his love, not just his love for the world as a whole, which he loved us individually. He loved you. He loved you. Even loved the choir, all right, and loved me. And because of the great love he has for us and because he is rich in mercy, look what it says in verse 5. And because of this, in verse 5, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ because by grace you have been saved. Now, don't miss this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God loved us, not because we discovered that we were wrong and we said, I'm going to work my way to God. I'm going to try to do good things. And then God looked down and said, oh, Danny, you're doing so great trying to come to me, so I'm going to meet you halfway. Not at all. It was because I was a stinking, dying sinner, dead in my trespasses, and God saw me just like that, and he says... I love you so much, I'm coming all the way. And I'm going to come to you, for by grace are you saved. And he said, I'm going to come to you by sending my son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. And it was not that we've done so many good works that we're trying to get up to God. And he says, oh, you're almost there. Let me just help you a little bit more. No. It says our righteousness is like filthy rags. It was nothing. And what God did was he sent his own son to come to earth and to live 33 years a sinless life and then to go to a cross and take on the wrath of God. Remember we talked about we're children of wrath? All the wrath that was supposed to come to us, he took all of that and he placed it on his son and his son died on the cross for us. But then he was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, he conquered that sin and he conquered death and he gives us this opportunity to have an eternal life and to be adopted in the family of God. And he says he did all this because he is rich in mercy and great in love. And even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This little statement, even when we're dead in our trespasses, takes away every excuse from every person who says, I'm just not good enough to become a Christian. None of us are. None of us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, 
we could, we could have a my sins are worse than your sins contest here in the church. Wouldn't that be a fun thing? All right, we started this section over here. Uh, and you sit there and say, hey, I'm going to tell you the worst thing I've ever done. And then I guarantee someone else would top it over here. I've seen this section, okay? Uh, somebody would top it over here. And then somebody in the balcony might say, well, hey, well, I've done this and this and this. I mean, we could share everything that we've ever done wrong. And in the midst of all of that, even we're dead in our trespasses, rich in mercy, great in love, he made us alive together with Christ. Because no matter how many sins that you share, and whether it's one or a million, we're dead. And he said, you are spiritually dead. Tell you what I did. I took my son, Jesus Christ, and he physically died because you were spiritually dead. And then he was physically raised to new life so that you could spiritually be made alive. And so you are made alive in Christ. And where all of us right now are physically alive, some of us are spiritually dead. But if we receive the gift of grace that God has offered to us, then we go from being dead to alive. And we become alive together with Christ. He says, for by grace, you have been saved. And then he goes to the next step in verse 6. And in verse 6, he talks about, and he raised us up with him and, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. In that Jesus ascended to heaven and he says, spiritually, you were raised up in union with Christ in the heavenlies. And so you have died to your sins, you've been raised to a new life, you've become this new creation, and you're spiritually one in union with Christ. See, that is great news. That is great news. And so you began to ask, you say, well, so why did God do all that? Why would God do that? Well, look what he says in verse 7. He says, so that, that's kind of letting you know this is why I did that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did he do this? In the coming ages, year after year after year, coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God did this so God would be glorified as people would look and see him and say, what a rich in mercy and great in love God we have. And you are his trophy. Because he says this is to be displayed for ages to come. He offers us salvation and he offers us grace that we can experience now in the present and we can also experience it for eternity. So just to be really basic, a person, as soon as we're born, we sin. When we begin to sin, uh, it separates us from God. Christ has paid the penalty for us. We come to a moment in our time in life where we are confronted with the gospel, we have an opportunity to accept or reject. We accept that. When, if we accept that, then at that moment, he says, you've gone from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually. And you live your life until one day you die physically. And when you die physically, as soon as you take the last breath on earth, you take your first breath in heaven. And now you are alive physically for all eternity. And so 
you are alive together with Christ because of God's rich mercy and his great love. And then he summarizes it in verse 8. And in verse 8 he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, the unmerited and unending favor of God. The unmerited, we don't deserve it. Unending, it goes on and on and on. Favor of God, you have been saved through faith. Which means God says, I've done all the work. You just need to accept it. And it's a gift. And you accept that gift or you reject that gift. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. And it's like any other gift. Somebody comes by and says, I want to give you a gift. You got options. Thank you very much. I'll take the gift. Or no, thank you. I don't want the gift. God's done everything. And he says, falls in your court. Accept the gift or reject the gift. And he reminds us, this is not of your own doing. This is not of your own doing. And look what he says in verse 9. And he says, it's not of your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God wants to be really clear on this, that it's not of anything good that you may have done, because if it was, then you would boast. Wouldn't we? I mean, wouldn't it be something if it was because part of our works is why we were saved, would we be a little bit cocky? Yeah. Yeah. We would say that. We'd say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, kind of built that house for habitat and kind of got me into heaven. Pretty talented, gave up a lot of time, uh, but I did that. Uh, Or, hey, gave a lot of money to some charity. Yeah. Uh, Went by and Help somebody that was hurting. Every bit of those are good things. But none of that gets us salvation. And if any of it did, God would get zero glory because we would take it all for ourselves and we would boast about how good we are and all the great things that we've done. And what Paul is reminding us, the author of this letter, is that it is for a grace that we are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's nothing that we have done to earn salvation. It is because of God's richness and mercy and his great love for us. And so I'm telling you all of this because we need to meet with God every day and to deepen that relationship because he is the one who is taking us from death to life. It's not the fact that you went to Sunday school, maybe 52 Sundays in a row, that now all of a sudden you've gone from death to life. It is strictly because of what what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in the empty tomb. Deepen those relationships. Deepen the relationship with him who took you from death to life. You see, Christianity is different from every other religion or any other spiritual thing because all these other spiritual uh, uh, sort of uh, pseudo-religions and then other established religions, everything is doing, doing, doing. Christianity is done. Everything else is you got to do this to do this to do this to do this and then maybe you'll go to heaven. Christianity is totally opposite. It's already been done. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, done. There's nothing you have to do except to accept that gift and to accept that gift of salvation. Everything else has been done. You say, well, so if I just accept that gift, then I just live life like I want to? No, no. Let me explain why. 
You see, he did verses one through nine. And he talks about this great, incredible God we have. And then you say, okay, he has saved me, so why? What's one of the purposes of him saving to me? That's where you come to your second point, and that is this. The more you know and believe your identity in Christ, the more you will live for Christ. The more you know and believe your identity in Christ, the more you will live for Christ. I love verse 10. It says... For we are his workmanship. Now he starts out with, for we are. He says, God has done this by grace you're saved. It's not through works. Let's see man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Workmanship. It is a, a word that means the skill of a craftsman. There are different scripture um, translations out there. Some translate this word workmanship as masterpiece. Piece of art. God's handiwork, the skilled craftsman. We are his workmanship. We are part of this this skilled craftsman that he has taken us and he's made us his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus. We're created in Christ Jesus. It was because we received Christ as our Savior, everything that Christ has done for us. God has then done this recreation. Remember when Jesus, they asked him, he said, uh, how can a person be saved? He says, you must be born again. There's a new life. The Bible says that when you receive Christ, uh, you become a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. There's this new creation. It's this recreation that takes place in your life. And he says, you are created in Christ Jesus. And I want you to read this out loud, these three words together. Ready? For good works. And thank you for the two people that did that. Ready? One more time. For good works. All right. This is where his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Maybe if he just left all that off, where his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus, just go home. Just live life as you want, right? No. For good works. Works that benefit others. Works that advance the kingdom of God. Works that bring glory to God. Works that point others to God. He says, you are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, and that we should walk in them. You walk in them. That means you should have such a lifestyle that identifies with Christ that we walk in that lifestyle. We walk in those works. It's not like, hey, I'm just going to be someone who's going to be loving and caring to an individual at maybe a week, a year. If I'm going to be loving and caring, it means i got to walk in that lifestyle. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be caring. I'm going to be a servant. When we begin to identify with Christ, when we identify with him, then we will live for him. See, the more and more that I can be like Christ then the more and more I will live like him and for him and I will do the works which God has prepared for me. Now, it was interesting in some things that I read about this word workmanship. And would you stick with me on this one? If you translate that as masterpiece, we're his masterpiece. Now, we know that God is the great creator. He created nature. And when we look at nature, and the nature reflects the glory of God, that's pretty cool. When we see a new baby that is born, and when we see new life, and then we realize the DNA intricacies within the human life, we realize that that is an amazing um, compliment to our creator who created a human. 
But it says, but we're his masterpiece. So some can look at this and say, even greater than the creation of the oceans and the shoreline, even greater than the newborn baby is the person who has been lost and is now saved. That God's highest masterpiece is the man or the woman who's dead in sin, whom God raised from a spiritual death and is now saved to do good works in his name. Now, what you think about that? This is the masterpiece. When God created you, knit you together in your mother's womb, that was an amazing thing. And we look at God as the creator and say, this is really something. What this verse is saying is that, yes, you were created. That's an amazing testimony of God's creative ability. But then when you were a sinner who was bound for destruction, and then you were redeemed, and you were born again, he said, that's my masterpiece. That's what he looks at. And so for any of you that have made that decision for Christ, it says you're his masterpiece. And I don't know about you, but people like to kind of show off their masterpieces, you know? You know, here, here's this, this, but this is my best. This is my masterpiece. Now, when I read that, a song came to my mind, and no, I'm not going to sing, and, uh, and no, it's not a 1960s song, nor a Beatles song, nor the Temptations. <laughs> I really got spiritual on this one. It's an old Brooklyn Tabernacle song, and it's called The Favorite Song of All. And what they did, and the writer of that song, is they captured what this teaching is. Let me just read this to you. It said, he loves to hear the wind sing as it whistles through the pines on mountain peaks. He loves to hear the raindrops as they splash to the ground in a magic melody. He smiles in sweet approval as the waves crash to the rocks in harmony. Creation joins in unity to sing a majestic symphony. And when I remember when I first heard that song, I said, oh, this is a song all about the creation and how the creation uh, lifts up praise to God. But here's the chorus. But his favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood lift to him a song of love, nothing more he'd rather hear nor so pleasing to his ear as his favorite song of all. He loves to hear the angels as they sing, holy, holy is the lamb. And in that song, they go, holy, 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 holy. Yeah, together. Heaven's choirs sing in harmony and lift up praises to the great I am. And I love this next line. But he lifts his hands for silence. He lifts his hands for silence as they are praising his name. He lifts his hands for silence. When the weakest saved by grace begins to sing and a million angels listen, as a newborn soul sings, I have been redeemed. It's his favorite song of all, is to hear the song of the redeemed. And when he hears that song of the redeemed, you're his masterpiece. You're his masterpiece. And as I understand that I have been blessed in Christ, I will bless others. And as I understand that I've been forgiven in Christ, I will forgive others. As I understand that I've been afflicted for the sake of Christ, I will comfort others in their affliction. And as I understand that I'm gifted in Christ, I will serve others.
However, I cannot bless, forgive, comfort, or serve others until I first understand that this is who I am in Christ. My identity will shape how I act. Therefore, I must discover daily who I am in Christ if I am to walk effectively in good works. If I'm going to walk in these works, I have got to daily understand who I am in Christ. And here's your final point. And his good works should occur as an overflow of your daily pursuit of God. Good works should occur as an overflow of your daily pursuit of God. So by spending time with God in his word on a daily basis, by prayerfully and carefully reading his word, we will little by little build on our knowledge of God, understand our salvation, our identity in Christ, which when that happens, that should deepen our love for him. And once our love is deepened, there should be this overflow that pours into the lives of those around us. Does that make sense? I deepen my relationship with Christ. I understand my identity in Christ. And then those good works begin to just overflow because of that daily pursuit of God. David Platt, used to be the pastor at Brook Hills, now the president of the International Mission Board, made this statement. He says, everything Christ does in me is intended to affect everyone Christ puts around me. Think about that statement. Everything Christ does in me is intended to affect everyone that Christ puts around me. What he's saying here is that we're sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. Everything Christ does in me is that transformation takes place in my life. I am sent to influence those people that are around me and influence them for Christ. That is my sphere of influence, those people that Christ puts around me. And when I become a transformed believer in influencing my world for Christ, I'm living according to what God is calling me to do. So you need to ask yourself, have I met with God today? And then follow that up with, so how am I doing? So how am I doing? Take that first measure. Let's put it down. Let's internalize it and make it a part of who we are and be challenged every day. Ask ourselves a question. Have I met with God today? Let me ask you to bow your head, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you took us from death to life. And because of that, we desire to deepen our relationship with you. And Lord, as we deepen that relationship with you, we realize that you have saved us so that we can go and display your glory. Father, we realize that... Um, that our works are not the things that save us, but our works will then show others what salvation means and what our relationship with Christ means. So I pray for each person in our congregation that during this week especially, you'll drive home to us what it means to meet with you and for us to better understand who you are, our identity in Christ, and then may that be an overflow of of works that we can move into this community and even beyond 
And that when people see us, they see Christ in us. And then your kingdom is advanced. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.